because I don't want to sit on an airplane. But um, but first class gets to sit on the plane. I think I think I figured out why they let first class um, sit on the plane first, and here's why: because they want you, the second class citizens, um, having to look at their faces as you enter the plane and get jealous and envious. Okay, this is my theory. So we can all agree if you've flown before. When you first enter first class on an airplane, um, it just feels like calm and relaxed, right, in first class. Like there's big seats. Um, there's people already seated. Um, I mean, they're being fanned. They're being fed grapes. Um, they have wine, like, already on their, their table. There's, like, a dude in the corner playing a violin, right? And, and it just feels like, oh, man, this is relaxing. This feels elegant. This feels like first class. And then... You walk to the curtain, the, the barrier, right, that separates first class from um, where the peasants uh, stay back there. And, uh, and so as soon as you enter in that, like that, that curtain area, it's like you're entering into a third world country during rush hour, right? Where you, 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 you walk into that second class citizen place and it's like there's chaos there are people jamming luggage like up into the ceiling and this won't fit and they're crying about that. And then there's some lady saying, you're going to have to check that bag in, sir. And uh, then you've got like three or four or eight babies just screaming bloody murder, right? Um, And they're spread out evenly throughout the plane so as to make every person's flight a nightmare. And, uh, I think one time I even saw like some donkeys and some caged chickens like just in that area of the of the airplane. And so you see like this this curtain like divides first class from second class, all right? Like they like to call second class, what do they call it? They call it like business class or coach. And I'm like, let's let's not fool around. Like this is like where the peasants stay. Okay, this is where the the the, the, the second class people stay. So how many of you, though, by show of hands, you are truly bothered by first class on an airplane? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. No one now. So a couple of people. Okay, so, so there might be an issue of, like, there's a trade-off because those guys are paying extra money, right? So it's not that big. It's like they're paying extra money, so they, they deserve first class. Okay, so let me ask you this question. What about when you go to a concert and all you could afford for Taylor Swift? I'm speaking to the ladies right now, right? not the guys, um, is like the nosebleed seats way up in the rafters. And you're looking way down on the stage, and you can see those people in the front row. And, um, of course, you know how much you paid. You know how much they paid. So how many of you are bothered at all by the way up top seats? Like you're in the way up top seats, and they're down on the floor. Are you bothered at all by that? No? No one? A little bit. Okay. So there's a separation there, too. Um, but again, it's a money thing. Like, they paid money. Maybe they deserve it, but you couldn't afford it. Or how about a sporting event? Same kind of idea, right? Um, you can barely, you've got to watch the TV at the stadium because you can't even see the field because your seats are so high. But the people in the front row have incredible seats. I'm guessing we're 0 for 2, so I'm guessing that doesn't bother you either because this is, they're paying the money for it. All right, let me ask you this question. So what if this happened at church? What if you like, what if we had like a first class section in church? Like up on the front row, we had like leather seats, recliner seats. They were getting like a foot 
rub, like while they're having the sermon, you know, um, maybe some manis and some petties, you know, stuff like that. Um, what if we had like first class, like based on how much you tithed, um, we had first class seats at church. Like how many of you guys would be bothered by that? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. So now, now the truth comes out. So there's a reason. So the question I want you to wrestle with this morning is why? Like, why does that bother us that if that happened in church, but it doesn't bother us at all if it happens out in society at large? And so today we are talking about the big topic of favoritism or partiality, as James calls it in James chapter 2. Go ahead and turn to James chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 to 13 today. James chapter 2, looking at verses uh, 1 to 13. And we'll start reading in verse 1, where James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down here at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So right away, he's painting this picture that I think is probably hard for us to imagine, isn't it? It's hard for us to imagine like this really playing out on a Sunday morning at a church. Like let's just picture taking place what he just described to us. So a, a guy walks in and he is wearing, like this is kind of old school, like you would never I mean, I'm wearing a gold ring right now, but no one, you know, like kissed my hand this morning as I walked into the building, right? This is not a big deal. But in that day, this would have been a big deal, and your clothing spoke volumes about you. So imagine it for a minute if, if there was someone who came into this place that was obviously well-known, obviously rich, and someone actually was like, oh, let me get this for you. Let me, why don't you sit here at our, at our, most, at our VIP table? And then someone else comes in who doesn't look as presentable, and we literally said to that person, hey, um, would you mind maybe standing there at the back? In fact, stand outside those doors back there and just look in through the windows. Just peer into the windows. Um, or you know what? That, it's kind of full out there. How about you sit down here at my feet, and I'll just prop my feet up on you like a footstool. I mean, this picture he's painting for the people he's writing this letter to sounds so extreme that it almost sounds like, un well, that would never happen. That, that would never happen in a church setting. That would never happen in society. And we can easily think that it's hard for us to imagine someone being told to sit in a certain place or you can't sit in a certain place because of your status in society. It's hard for us to imagine that until we remember pictures like this, right? It's hard for us to imagine the reality of that until we see images from the past like this, where there really was a separation among people based on status, based on ethnicity, based on how society viewed you. And this wasn't too long ago in our own country. And of course, this was changed by um, people acting out against it, people like Rosa Parks deciding, you know what, I'm going to sit on the front of the bus 
I'm not going to the back of the bus. I'm going to sit on the front of the bus. And they forced the hand of civil governments and, and showed the hypocrisy. And here's the crazy part about this. Is it the picture I showed you all ago? The church backed it. The church said it was okay. The church said, no, that's the way things should be. And so the churches were segregated. The schools were segregated. Everything was segregated based on um, how people saw you. And this resulted in seats where you get to sit and where you don't get to sit. So it's really hard for us to imagine the picture painted in James actually happening in the church until you just remember our own history as a nation and our own history, especially the church in the South where we currently live. Now for us, it may not happen in ways like this. It may not happen today in ways that that are extreme as what I've just described and shown to you on the screen, but it might happen in more subtle ways for us um, here in this room. James raises, he brings a word, he says, he uses the word partiality. Here's what that word means. Partiality means to accept or judge based on appearance or status. Partiality means to accept or judge based on appearance or status. We might call, use the word prejudice to prejudge. Now, prejudice can mean or prejudgment can mean positively or negatively, meaning I give this person more value based on their status or how they appear, or I give this person less value based on how they appear or what their status is. Uh, many of you remember Stephen uh, Chung, who was, um, he was the, the Brit. He used to preach here a lot over in the main service. Um, and he is now a, a pastor up in New York City. And recently, he had texted uh, some of us on staff a picture of one of their first Sundays there in the city, one of their first Sunday services. And Stephen didn't even know this, but someone texted back and said, hey, do you know who's sitting in the front row of your church, um, at your church service? And Stephen was like, I don't, I don't know who that is. And they said, it's this guy who is um, a pretty well-known anchor for NBC. Okay? I'm not going to mention the name because Stephen actually said, Dave, I don't want you to flaunt this. I'm trying to tell you the story without telling you the full story here because he actually asked me to not do that. So it's actually a pretty well-known guy that Stephen didn't know who he was. And, of course, you and I, like, I think about that, and I go, man, if I was in Stephen's shoes, and once I found out who this guy was, and he was on the front row of my church, the next time I see this guy, I'll be real tempted to be like, oh, hey, hey, you know what, um, hang on a second, uh, hey, how's it going, how are you, I'm Stephen, you know, and, um, and great to have you here, right? Like, once you know who someone is, it becomes very difficult to not show that person favoritism or partiality based on their status in society. So I want to ask you this morning, think really deeply about the ways in which you and I and our leaders do this in here. It may not be about money because, let's face it, you're in high school, like you're, you're poor still, right? Now your parents have some money, some of your parents have some money, but for the most part, like, we don't, we may not think about just that, at least not right now, but there are some other ways in which we draw lines in this room. 
It might be based around um, lots of things, intellectual ability, athletic ability, uh, just common interests, the way you dress, your personality, What's, what kind of school setup you go to. There are ways that we draw lines, even in this room, um, I think on Sundays and Wednesdays. Um, what kind of person, when they walk into this room, you instantly kind of notice and perk up and think, oh, that, that person's in here. Like, I need to make sure that I'm kind of move on over there and make sure I make my presence known, make sure I sit with that person, make sure I'm with that person. Or on the flip side, what kind of person walks into the room and you think, okay, that person's here. Like, I, I got to, I'm going to avoid, I'm going to go a different route around this table. I'm going to go this other way because I don't want to have to interact. So what are the ways in which we do very similar things um, here in this room on Sundays and Wednesdays? You know, um, he, he paints this picture in this, uh, in this first part of the passage. He paints a picture of it's all about clothing. In fact, they use the words. He's wearing fine clothing, and he's, the other guy's wearing shabby clothing. I didn't know shabby was a word that was actually in the Bible, but it is. He's wearing shabby clothing. You get the picture of what he's describing here. And most of us, I think, here, we think of fashion. If I were to say fashion, you would think, yeah, that's modern. Fashion is modern. Like, it used to be that people would just wear clothing because it was practical. Like, it was just, you had to cover up, so they would just wear whatever. But clothing has always been a symbol of status. It was back then, and it is today. If you don't believe me, just turn on the television. Look at the cover of a magazine. Fashion has always been indicative of status. In fact, marketers have gotten brilliant over the years because what they do now, let's just be honest, like none of us just wear clothing for the pragmatic purpose of wearing clothing, do we? If we did, it would all be the same, right? It would all have the same color, all the same texture, all look exactly the same with no style, no fashion. No one would ever come into the room and say, ooh, I like your your shirt. It's the same one that I'm wearing, but I like yours. Like nobody would ever say that. Because with clothing, with everything that you and I buy, marketers have figured out that if we can learn how to tie in a story with what people buy, they're more likely to buy it. So not to single anybody out, but you're wearing a a Nike shirt. What's Nike's slogan? Just do it. Everyone knows just do it, right? Everyone knows the slogan. You know the brand. There are certain brands that speak and say something about who we are, right? And marketers know this. Car manufacturers know this. That um, I wish I could show you guys the car I had when I was 19 years old. I wish I had a picture of that car. It was horrific, all right? But when you're driving a certain kind of car, you think, man, this says something about me, and I don't like what it says about me. i got to get a different car because I want the one that says something different about me. And so we look at externals and we make judgments about people in, in their external situation. Some of you in the room, you think to yourself, like you hear a passage like this and you think, well, I mean, I get what he's saying, but I mean, I've got, I've got my people. I've got my preferences. These are my preferences. I prefer these people over these people. Wait, I, I can't be best friends with everyone I've got to have some friends, and I'm not arguing against friends and being good friends, 
But I am arguing this morning against where you leave people out and where the friendship groups become so insular and just about um, like being with like that there's, a, there's an exclusion that takes place. And so, in fact, James calls this something, or God calls this something in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So if you and I do this kind of thing, he calls it just sheer evil. This comes from the word, um, go to my next slide here. This comes from the word dialogismos, Greek word, evil thoughts, which means opinions, reasoning, and conclusions. This is you concluding something about someone based on their appearance and how they just seem to you. And James, and God calls it evil. And here's why it's such a big deal. On the, on the surface, it might seem like, you know, we're just talking about seats, right? I mean, what's the big deal? Like seats, like where you sit, what's the big deal about that? But um, there's a guy named Sam Albury who says this next quote. He says, James' point is simple. Favoritism is unchristian. It's, it says, in effect, that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. So think about that. Favoritism says someone who is of greater value in the world, when that plays out in the church, you're basically saying they're of more value to the church because they happen to be more valuable to the world. On the flip side of this, and correspondingly, that someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. So let's just be really honest this morning. If you haven't sensed this already, the world that you and I live in is cutthroat. Do you, do you ever find yourself laying in bed at night just feeling the pressure already of how cutthroat the world is? Now, I'm going to describe some things to you real quick. Listen, from an early age, I can recall when I was in kindergarten, we had reading groups. Now, these groups were based on ability. In kindergarten, there was like the, the, like the, the one group, the two group, and the three group. And everyone knew what that meant. That meant if you're in the one group, like you're the best reader. If you're in two, you're, yeah, you're okay. If you're in the third group, well, good luck to you. And from very early on, you and I are taught this world is cutthroat. Like this world is about success. This world is about um, success and failure, and you better not fail. This is how the world operates. We see it on sports teams. What do we call the best player on a team? The most valuable player. There's value because that person is so successful. We see it in junior high and high school. We see it in class rankings. Can you imagine if we had um, rankings in here on Sunday morning? Like a big old screen that you walk into the church, and it's like there's the rankings of all of our students in church. Number one this week, we have so-and-so. Number two is so-and-so. Number three, right? And you walk in, and like you're read your ranking in the church based on how you perform spiritually somehow. We also see in how it's um, how scholarships are awarded. 
I mean, if you perform, you get some money. What colleges do you get to go to? We see it in what jobs you might get one day. We see it everywhere. Our world is cutthroat. And if there's one place that this should not apply, it should be um, the kingdom of Christ, and this applies to the church. Now, listen, I'm not at all advocating a society where, like, everyone gets a trophy, right? Or everyone just has the same salary. I'm not saying anything like that today. I'm just trying to point out the reality you and I live in is that the world is cutthroat. And if there's one place that shouldn't apply, it should apply to the church. It should apply to the kingdom um, of Jesus Christ. You guys have, uh, uh, do your first three questions there at your tables for a few minutes. Go ahead and do questions one to three. All right, let's go on to the next uh, section here. Look down at verse 5. Look at James chapter 2, verse 5, where James says, listen. I'm just saying that's the first word of the passage, right? He says, listen. What? That's, that's what the passage says. Emphasis. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But, if you, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We said two weeks ago that the gospel on the ground turns everything upside down. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. It just did. It just came out that way. But this is true. The gospel on the ground turns everything upside down. And who does God choose? God throughout history has chosen the less. He has chosen the poor. Now, does that mean he can't work through rich people? No, it does not mean that. But it does mean throughout history, God has chosen those who seem less to society. So James is asking a question. He's saying, why do you guys so badly want to kiss up to the rich when they're the ones who are exploiting you? They're the ones who are treating you less because you're poor and you want to kiss up to the rich when they come into your assembly, they're the ones that are filing lawsuits against you in this culture here. They're the ones persecuting you and mocking you. And I think, once again, if we're honest, you and I do the exact same kind of thing. It may not be the rich, but we so badly want to be respected by the world, by the media, by the culture at large. I mean, let's just be really honest today. How many of you guys, you, you hate seeing how Christianity is portrayed to the culture at large? Like, raise your hand on this. Like, you really feel it. You feel you hate when society at large sees you as some, like, naive, backwoods, gullible, hillbilly, redneck type of a person, right? You don't like it when they see you. Like, you want them to see you as sophisticated, culturally astute, you know, people that are, that are, that are, um, that can, that can hang with people that live in the urban areas, right? Like, you, you want to be seen as that, and yet so often, put this next quote up on the screen, we in the church want so badly to be respected by the world while we often disrespect the people right in front of us. And I think you and I are guilty of it. And the people James is writing to are guilty of this. And there is this perception in the culture at large that does think that Christians 
are a bit backwoods. Let's just be honest about that, right? That we're a bit, we're not ahead of the curve, so to speak. And, and I can understand a little bit how they might think that. In fact, I want to show you this by just looking at a map of the U.S. Here's a map of the U.S. Hopefully you know it well and know where things are. <laughs> Where's Texas? Um, it's there in the middle. Um, so this is a map of the U.S. Now, which areas of the U.S. would you say seem to be cooler? Not temperature-wise, but like just cooler. Give me some cities. Okay, I heard California. I heard New York. I heard Florida. Someone said Hawaii. But give me, no, give me some cities. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on, hang on. I heard Seattle. I heard... Someone said Michigan. I'm like, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. Somebody said Michigan. I don't know. Michigan? What's cool about Michigan? There's snow. All right, that's why I said cities. Give me some cities. Cities that you think of as like, that's a cool city. I want to go visit that city. All right, Chicago. Someone said Denver. All right, so if we were to break it down, listen, listen, listen. Listen for a minute. Let's just be real honest here. Like, what are the cities in our country where if you say you're from there, people kind of go like, oh, oh, you're from, you're from New York, right? Or you're from, uh, you're from Chicago. Or I wouldn't say Los Angeles fits that, would you? It's, I've been there. I don't really want to go back there again. Um, but there, maybe Seattle, maybe San Francisco. But there are some cities in our country that if you say you're from there, people are going to be like, oh, like, I, that's, that's cool. I, I like that. That's, they see you as more sophisticated, right? In fact, what I find myself doing, um, my wife actually laughs at this, because uh, I'll say things like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not from here. I'm, I'm, I'm East Coast. You know, I'm East Coast. And I'll use that expression. She's like, she's like just shut up, you know? And and what I haven't told you, what I haven't, what I haven't shown you is if I could pull up a Google map of where I'm from, you would laugh your head off because it's basically cow fields and cornfields, right? And it is, it is in the middle of nowhere, and I, I like to associate myself with, yeah, I'm from the, the Washington, D.C. area. And so you're like, oh, yeah, Washington, that's cool. Yeah, Washington, D.C., I've been there before. It's a really nice, really nice city. But if I showed you, like, the town I actually grew up in, do you know what it's called? It's called, ready, Catlett, Virginia. You ever heard of that? Google it, man. It's awesome, all right? No, seriously, it is a backwoods, redneck, hillbilly town, like to the T, okay? But here's what I do. Um, if someone says, where are you from? I try to say, well, you know, I'm from, I try to like lean towards the city. Like, I'm from the Washington, D.C. area. That's where I'm from. And that sounds a little more legit, like, okay, well, he's, he's more sophisticated than we thought he was, right? And so we all do this to an extent. Um, like, even now, if I'm, like, in another part of the world, I will often say, that, like, where are you from? And I'm like, well, you know, we live in Temple, Texas, but it's, like, really close to Austin. It's only an hour away, you know, give or take. Traffic and stuff. But here's the deal. We always want to affiliate ourselves with 
the urban, like the cultured, right? This sounds more sophisticated. And here's what I want you to see from this. Listen, we want to be respected as Christians, right? And if you are from the cities, you tend to be more sophisticated, more respected. If you're from where I'm actually from, you tend to be less respected. And here's what I'll tell you. If you look at the map of the U.S., the areas that tend to be more respected culturally tend to be the areas that are seen as less Christian. The areas that tend to be seen as more Christian are the areas that, that, that seem to be less respected culturally. The Bible Belt, I would say, runs from Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, um, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, Oklahoma. That's the Bible Belt, as we call it. That is the part of the country I would say is probably the least respected culturally, but it's seen as the most Christian. And here's the crazy thing. God himself said that this would be the way that it is. Do you know where you find that? Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So the Bible actually told us that that map would play out the way that it plays out. That Christians would not be seen as the powerful. Christians would not be seen as the respected ones in the culture. Now the question is why? Why does God have it set up? I mean, wouldn't it be better for God if Christians were the ones that were the rich and the wealthy and the powerful and everyone wanted to be just like them? Wouldn't that be more of a, a better situation for the church and for God if that was the case? Well, I want you to read on to verse 29, 1 Corinthians 1, 29, where it says, here's why God has set things up this way, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He does not want us showing favoritism because favoritism opposes the gospel, and it's not how God himself works. It's not how God himself works. God wants the church to be an extension of his character and how he operates. So this should not surprise us that God chooses the lowly. He chooses the poor. He chooses the culturally unsophisticated. Because after all, you and I follow after a carpenter that came from a little city called Nazareth, which is described a lot like Catlett, Virginia, a place of no consequence. And we follow after someone who was a criminal, tried as a criminal. He wasn't a criminal. He was tried as a criminal. And he was crucified as a criminal. So Jesus himself was considered less by the society around him. How much more should we expect that his followers should be considered less 
by the culture around them. Look down at verse 8 in James chapter 2, verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are, who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If I commit murder, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? If I commit murder and get caught, what's going to happen to me? Going to jail or death penalty possibly, right? Now what if I, but what if I've been a really good dad? What if I've never shoplifted, never had a speeding ticket? That part's not true. But what if I had never had a speeding ticket? (laughs) What if everything else is good? I follow the law to the T, but I murdered someone. How much weight does that other stuff matter as far as my murder trial goes? Does it matter at all? It doesn't matter at all, does it? If I break that law, I'm going to jail or the death penalty. This past week, you guys know that my wife is a counselor. She's a therapist and meets with a lot of people. And she has to hear some horrific stories. And this past week, my wife had to testify in a trial in Austin, testify against a man who has done some horrific things to children. And that man, in two weeks, will hopefully be sentenced to prison for the rest of his life. Now, if he tried to play the card of, yeah, I did these horrific things, but I've been a really good psychiatrist. I've been a really good doctor. I've been a really good brother, a really good friend. If he tries to play that card, that is not going to hold up in court. So here's the point that James is trying to make. He's trying to make the point that if you and I show favoritism, partiality, we are lawbreakers just like the person who has committed adultery or someone who has committed murder. Now I want to ask you the question, how many of us have ever seen partiality or favoritism in that light? Have we ever seen favoritism as you are a lawbreaker just like someone who has murdered someone? Just like someone who has committed adultery? And yet God says we are a lawbreaker. Verse 12 says that we will be judged under the law of liberty. When I think of law, I think of restraint. I think of oppression. But he says the law actually liberates us and sets us free. I want to close with one quote here. We're going to get um, you guys to discussion. Because the last verse talks about mercy and judgment. And I want to give you this last quote. He says, a guy named Sam Albury says, There is no other way to make a human being merciful than for them to become gripped and defined by the mercy of God shown to them. To be merciful, you've got to be someone who's gripped by the gospel, gripped by mercy, um, as the gospel defines that. Um, I also want you to see 
I want to ask you just one question as we close. I'm not trying to make anyone here feel guilty, just a little convicted, and I guess those are the kind of the same thing, right? But if on an upcoming Sunday I said, you know, today we're going to have your favorite celebrity, whatever that celebrity is, we're going to have your favorite celebrity here at the Outback for lunch like a meet and greet. How many of you would make some time for that? And you would say, like, yeah, I think I'm going to try to be there for that. Most of you, I think, would, don't even, I know you would. Don't even raise your hands, right? I know you would. You'd be here for that. Um, and you'd make an effort to be here for that. But since we're not doing that, we're not having your favorite celebrity here. And since instead, on November 13th, we are going to have lunch in this room, and then take canned goods to about 54 families in our city. And the last couple of years, and I'm not trying to, I mean, I own this as well. It's on me. It's not just on you. But the last couple of years, we're asking you guys to sign up on Sunday morning to help us deliver food to 54 families that are in need. And it has been like pulling teeth trying to get many of you to come and help serve on that Sunday. You come here, you eat lunch on that Sunday afternoon. We drive. We drive you to these homes. We, it, it, you put a face behind it, like what the, the service we're trying to do for these families. And even last year, we had like 25 of you signed up, and about like less than half actually showed up that Sunday to help deliver the food. And so I'm not trying to manipulate you. Okay, yes, I am. Um, but... I do want us to be inspired this morning to be here November 13th. If you want to help us serve on that Sunday, sign up at your table right now before you leave today and say, I want to be here to help serve these families as they have needs. And so I'm going to close with that. I want you guys to finish your discussion there at your tables. Go ahead and discuss your last few questions at your tables.